the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. It's a Wednesday, April the 1st, and that's no April Fool's joke. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this edition of Lifeline. You might be home. Likely you are. All the folks that are out on the road engaged in providing essential services to the San Francisco Bay Area. We salute you, and um, great to have you on board for another edition of the program. We've got a pretty pretty jam-packed show today. Coming up a little bit later on, our dear friend... <laughs> Pardon me, our dear friend Dr. Jerry Buckner is going to join us. By the way, we'll be featuring a sermon message by Dr. Buckner later in the week. He gave a keynote at the 54th Annual Bass Church Workers Convention here in early March, which <laughs> seems like eons ago. And it was a particularly moving message, so much so that we requested a copy of it. And we're going to share that with you coming up Friday at 5 o'clock on Lifeline. So uh, we'll talk more about that with Dr. Buckner when he joins us coming up tonight in the um, 5.30 segment of the program. Well, uh, speaking of things that seem like eons ago, it seems like the train that we didn't see coming decades ago now, or really only in mid-January when we learned that this thing that now has taken over our lives had just arrived on U.S. shores from one rest home in Kirkland, Washington, to now 77 days later, 186,000 cases, 3,603 dead, and an average of 2,415 cases per day. Let's talk a bit about how this has roiled every aspect of American life, and certainly the challenges that are being faced by government to meet the need. Joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Congressman Tom McClintock. He, of course, represents California to Washington for the 4th District. Although, actually, uh, Congressman, you're probably uh, here at home in uh, California, aren't you? Yeah, I'm actually in the district right now, and our office is remaining open in this crisis. So if um, if you're living in the 4th District and you're, you're trying to keep your family finances afloat or... Uh, you know, preserve your small business, keep your employees paid, or uh, trying to bring home uh, loved ones who are stranded overseas or get access to medical treatment or resolve a problem with a federal agency, uh, we are open and we're here for you. So uh, uh, don't hesitate to give us a call. Well, we appreciate that, time, and of course your tireless efforts on behalf of all Californians in Washington, D.C., and particularly at home now uh, in Northern California, helping to address many of the challenges that all of us are facing in, in trying to figure out this, this new life. As we take a look at this, and you and I have talked about many of the shortcomings in things like Obamacare in the past, has this, in your opinion, from your new, unique perspective, Congressman, really revealed a lot of weaknesses and shortcomings in the overall American health care system today that, frankly, Actually, heretofore, we just didn't know? 
I think more than anything, it's emphasized its strengths. Uh, uh, according to every international agency, the United States is in the best possible position to confront this uh, this healthcare crisis. We have about 35 uh, ICU beds per 100,000 population. Uh, Germany's got about 30. But you look at uh, at Great Britain with its socialized uh, health care system, they have 6.6 beds per 100,000. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, I, I think, if anything, this is emphasizing the strength of the American system, not to mention the enormous resources that the private sector uh, uh, has uh, focused on this, uh, everything from uh, ramping up uh, uh, production of test kits to um, uh, the, the treatment and vaccine uh, measures that uh, are already uh, starting in clinical trials. Uh, this has been a major mobilization of, um, uh, of Yankee ingenuity. Uh, you know, people forget that in World War II, when we were attacked, um, uh, the war was won by uh, uh, Ford and uh, Kaiser Steel and all of the um, all of the m- uh, 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 amazing uh, American uh, um, uh, enterprises that all came together and turned their formidable production uh, on the um, uh, on the on the crisis, and that's happening in this crisis as well. One of the big concerns that we've heard voiced is this notion that's happened over many decades, apparently, and that is the amount of pharmaceuticals that are now being produced offshore. We hear stories that there's now reliance of almost 90% of our drugs coming from China. How true from your perspective is that? And does Congress need to step in to take some action in order to deal with the perceived weakness in having to be so reliant upon a nation like China for our drug supply? Well, first of all, don't forget there are an awful lot of American companies that are producing these products uh, on American shores. Uh, uh, it's true they can also uh, uh, produce more uh, um, uh, economically um, uh, in some other countries. Part of that, by the way, is our, our tax system. Uh, I've got a major facility called AMFAC here in my district. Uh, they produce um, uh, the um, uh, medicines for, for various, uh, among other things, epilepsy treatments. Um, uh, because of the huge corporate taxes we had in the United States, they simply could not produce these things in the United States. They had to take them to Ireland. Uh, uh, when we reformed the tax codes and brought our, our corporate tax system back in line with the national norm, uh, that production returned here. So you're already seeing some of that return. Uh, uh, you know, constantly uh, uh, relying on, on potentially hostile countries like China, that's a problem. But I think that problem can be most efficiently and economically addressed by stockpiling um, uh, uh, what we would need here in a crisis if there was an interruption in, um, uh, in supply. And, of course, the challenge there, though, realistically speaking, is we never know what kind of an interruption may be, and therefore it's difficult to say, well, stockpile how much of what. And, of course, medicine also has a limited shelf life, so that, that, that presents a challenge under any set of circumstances. Well, it, it does to a certain extent, but, uh, again, there's a lot of stuff that uh, we know we will need in any medical crisis, uh, and, you know, we ought to, if, if we're relying on suppliers um, uh, that are potentially hostile, uh, you know, uh, we, we ought to either, either develop other suppliers or stockpile supplies so that they, uh, they, they cannot interrupt uh, uh, the products that we need. Let's pivot to the overall national response. Uh, Again, as I suggested, um, Congressman, in my opening remarks, this hit us like a freight train. 
Yes, we had seen cases coming out of China. Yes, there were some concerns raised by the intelligent community. But, I, you know, other than the nebulous, well, something big may happen at some time from somewhere, which is pretty hard to wrap your hands around. Um, the way this came across and the response that you've seen by the federal government in the ensuing now exactly 77 days since it first hit U.S. shores, how well of a job do you think we have done? And with all the talk of the impact of the coronavirus and the shutdowns in states like our own and the um, impact both directly and indirectly on so many tiers of business from corporate America down to the small mom and pop to even the the gig economy worker. Everybody um, has been impacted in one fashion or another. If they haven't already, they will soon. Do you think the response so far has been adequate? And what of some of the talk we hear, um, I think it was one of the former advisor to the um, Obama administration who said, well, $2.5 trillion is going to be a drop in the bucket from what we're really going to need in order to cushion the blow of the impact of this. What do you say with your financial background? Well, that, that's, a, that's a huge problem. And, 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 and there are two major questions uh, that we really have not addressed. Uh, I, I was part of a conference call with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, just this morning. Uh, and I, I asked him two questions. Uh, the, the first question was, have, have we, in, in, in all of these home detention orders across the country that have basically idled more than 200 million Americans, um, have we taken into account what happens if we plunge this country into a major recession, which appears we have now done, because there, there are uh, poverty-related deaths uh, that could be uh, astronomical. I mean, a question occurs, you know, how many people died during the Great Depression because, because of poverty-related deaths? Um, that's an important question. I asked him, have we taken that into account? And I was disappointed to discover, no, that's not being taken into account. There is, there is no attempt to analyze how many poverty-related deaths may we be setting in motion by these policies. That's an important question, an even more important question was raised by a, a, a paper released from Oxford uh, University last week. In that uh, paper, uh, they uh, postulated that as of March the 19th, as much as 68% of the population in Great Britain had already been infected by this virus. Uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, as you know, uh, in most cases, it manifests itself as a mild cold if, it, if you have any symptoms. Um, and so they were saying, you know, this could be an already uh, in up to 68% of the population. Now, if that's true of the United States, that has huge implications because it affects everything from the case fatality rate. How severe is this uh, 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 virus to uh, uh, how, how far has it already advanced uh, into the American population? If Oxford is right, and those numbers are also applicable to the United States, well, then uh, all of these home detention orders are way too late. That's the bad news. The good news is that there is a sizable uh, 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 immunity already extended throughout the population. We, don't, we, we have got to have that information in order to make informed decisions, and that can be done through a randomized serological uh, 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 test, basically, um, uh, you take a, a random uh, sample of, of, of blood across the country, you test it for antigens, that is um, uh, uh, antibodies 
that the body produced in response to a COVID-19 infection. Then we know how far did it advance through the, uh, the population and how many people already have now a, an established immunity for it. These are critical uh, 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 information. I, I asked, you know, when are we going to do a, a randomized uh, uh, serological study to find out if Oxford University is correct? And again, the, the answer came back that we're not there yet. I, I, I'm very concerned that we're making multi-trillion dollar decisions affecting 327 million Americans uh, without a full picture of how severe is this disease and, and how widespread is it already. And this, of course, is the utter irony, and that is that we've seen so many cases of people that have tested positive and yet demonstrated no apparently symptoms whatsoever. The biggest fear has been those people who are infected, who pass it on, who show no signs of disease whatsoever, which as as some level, and I understand you're not a physician, but at some level, Congressman, has got to be demonstrative of this notion that some people apparently have an ability to to uh, grow antibodies or at least respond to it in a fashion where it doesn't impact their bodies the way it does others, where perhaps, yes, because of compromised immune systems or what have you. But there definitely does seem to be tremendous value in being able to get our hands on the kind of information as you're suggesting. Well, and, and that's the point. Again, for most people, it, it, if anything, it's a mild respiratory illness. For some people, it will kill you. Um, and, and we need to know, how, one of the important bits of information we have to have is, you know, what is the case fatality rate? What, you know, you know how many people uh, uh, that, that get this disease actually end up dying from it? The initial numbers were 3.5%. That's about 35 times the, uh, the, the fatality rate for um, uh, for uh, uh, the flu. Uh, right now in the United States, we're running about 2% of the cases of, uh, become mortal. Um, but that's not giving us a full picture of the disease. If for every person that gets sick enough to go in for, for uh, um, uh, to a doctor, gets tested and tests positive, if for every person like that, there are 10 others who got the disease a month ago, uh, thought it was a head cold, and got over it well then the case fatality rate is is much lower uh, and we've got to know that in order to make the kind of decisions that we're making that that, that affect uh, uh, the livelihoods of every american and the lives of every american yeah this definitely perhaps if, if nothing else is going to cause the american health care system and the way we approach these sorts of opportunistic viruses in, in an entirely different fashion. Congressman, again, you mentioned about the fact that um, your home office is remaining open during this time so that if constituents are facing challenges in a variety of arenas, uh, I- including perhaps not getting access or knowing where to get access to resources for small businesses, things of this sort, they can just reach out to the, uh, the district office directly then? Yeah, we, and again, we, 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 can, we only have the resource to serve our constituents, so obviously you'll need to check if, if you're in a different district, if you're in the 4th District. Our office is open. It's staffed. Give us a call. There are both emergency as well as ongoing safety net programs that might be available, um, uh, and uh, you know, we, can help you, we can help you through that. And, of course, we're putting up as much information as we can as we get it on the website in terms of the programs that are available. We appreciate that. And, of course, that resource available on the web is uh, oh, there yes, for Martin. anyone to uh, go to, and they can check that out at mcclintock.house.gov. That's McClintock. 
www.house.gov. Our thanks to California Congressman Tom McClintock, representing California from the 4th District, for that update. 5.20 on the clock. Let's get you an update on traffic right now as we swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Brian Johnston joins us now, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And um, Brian, we talked last week about the uh, treatment of this issue of coronavirus from a state governance level. And of course, we've seen a lot of new regulations that have come on board that have tried to control behaviors. We try to control the spread of COVID-19. Uh, ironically, of some of the laws that are being implemented, others are being tossed by the wayside. What I find absolutely astonishing as we are dealing with this shelter-in-place, social distancing aspects of the virus, that the state of California seems to be picking and choosing which regulations to implement and the other ones with which to dispose clarify for this and help us understand if you can why it is that in the state of california we have more regulations now governing how veterinary clinics operate under the crisis than we do abortion clinics where direct human lives are in the balance yes craig it's it is astounding and the only answer again uh thank you for having me on and and hope you're sheltering in place, uh, I'm pretty sure that this is an opportunity for everyone, every listener, but every Californian to think more deeply about life. It's a great opportunity. On our issue, on the life issue, you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to our state. Many governors have already stated, and even this governor, our governor, Newsom, has stated that he doesn't want hospitals doing elective procedures. Uh, he wants to reduce that. But ironically, not for abortion clinics. Now, I'd like, I sent you some links. I don't know if you had a chance to look on them. If you, any of the listeners, go to the state law books, and you can go to the state law books, West California Law, and it publishes there the existing statutes regarding abortion regulations in California. Go ahead and click on that, and you'll be somewhat surprised, I hope, because you'll find that all of the abortion-related regulations in California were repealed. There are no regulations of abortion in California. And that's kind of stunning. We're talking about regulations for cleanliness. We're talking about lighting. And by contrast, as you mentioned, Craig, if you click on the links to the state veterinary requirements. It's called their minimum requirements. There are pages and pages and pages required of a veterinary hospital, a veterinary clinic, anyone who offers veterinary services, the nature of the lighting, the cleanliness of the facility, uh, the emergency requirements, point after point after point. But there's nothing for abortion. Why is that? Think about the ideology that controls our state regarding abortion. It's a choice. There's nothing to it. It's like breathing. This is just natural part of a woman's life. Don't you dare regulate it in any way. You're denying a choice. And what that means 
Choice means abortion at any time for any reason or no reason in particular, just because it's chosen. And that is the ideology of choice. Many people don't realize that. But if you confront our own laws, that's what they're saying. And literally, children and their mothers, they have less protection than your dog. And that's a declaration of our values. Now, our governor... Of all of the procedures that are being locked in, many churches are in lockdown. You can't go to church in California, but you can go to get an abortion. And he is one of a handful of governors that have actually given abortion a special privilege at this time. It's rather stunning. But that is a commentary on the values that are that are controlling our legal system. So it's critically important that if you're pro-life, you understand that Roe v. Wade doesn't just authorize abortion in the first trimester. That the Roe and Doe decisions by the Cal, excuse me, by the U.S. Supreme Court are actually allowing abortion on demand and allowing it in California. We're going to have a blockbuster news conference next week, Greg. If you recall, we made a request on January 22nd of this year, a FOIA request, which is in California is is known as the CIA. Uh, request, California Information Act request, but if you say CIA, people get confused. But we made, a, our attorneys filed a request with the Department of Health Services to please explain the nature of these laws and how they are enforced, and perhaps more importantly, how does the Department of Health Services pay for abortions? Which ones will they pay for? I am not going to tell you because we're going to hold out, but it's an ink. We got the results back from the state of California, their admissions to what they do, and it will stun you. It will make your jaw drop in terms of what happens in California. You think you were stunned by what goes on in New York now. Remember a year ago, the state of New York passed a law to have abortion at any time and to allow a baby to be killed even after they're born, to be set aside like trash. And then the governor of Virginia, if you recall the governor of Virginia, by the way, he himself is a pediatrician. And when he commented on it, if you recall his comments, it sounded like he had done this. Oh, and if the child is born alive, well, we just set them aside to decide what to do with them later. As if he's talking about a hamburger. We're talking about a human being, a child you can hold in your arm that's already been born. So the abortion mentality is this, that you can own another human being. And you're free to kill a human being you own. We had addressed this as a nation with the 13th Amendment. You cannot own, a, a mother does not own the child in her womb. Yes, a mother does have responsibilities, and we want to help her with those responsibilities. But if we begin to look at other human beings as disposable, it is corrupting our entire society. And that begins with the most vulnerable. So. Yes, these laws are there. We're seeing now during the coronavirus. I am appreciative that people are realizing that there's a vulnerable community, the elderly and those who are who are most susceptible. But as you and I cherish that as Christians, you need to know there's a whole segment of society that says, well, they're the most dangerous and disposable. And there have been proposals that that end of life well, those are disposable people, do not resuscitate. 
there, there's proposals for an automatic do not resuscitate order on these folks. And we have reports from Italy that in Italy, there's an Israeli doctor who had volunteered there, and he sent out a report. They're not allowed to treat people over 60. They're basically walking away from them because they feel so overwhelmed. That's not a definition of triage. That's not the ethical definition of a triage in medicine. You go to those who are in most need and most immediate. You don't dismiss whole classes of people. And so this is an ominous term. There's a good side to this. We who have a foundation need to really affirm that foundation, that every life is valuable and the most vulnerable should be protected. And I see that being echoed. I see that being echoed in the president. I see it being echoed by many of the comments uh, on the national and state level. But some of these comments, like that of Governor Newsom, are intentionally disposing of life, dismissing the value of lives. And that's stunning. So we have to be ready for this battle. We're going to release our FOIA request, our CIA request, the California Information Act legal document, their admissions to what is actually being done. And I got to tell you, Greg, uh, I know it won't surprise you, but it should surprise all of us. And the other thing we're going to do, we've been talking to some folks in New Mexico and, and Utah who address this, we're going to have some answers to address it because here's the other problem I see with our audience in the Bay Area especially, but really throughout the state, there's a tendency to give up. There's a tendency to say, well, we can't control the governor. There's nothing we can do. There's actually something that we can do now. And I'm going to mention that next week. But unless people know how serious this is, your dog has more legal protection in a veterinary clinic than a mother and baby in an abortion clinic. And if that doesn't stop you, I don't know what will. If that doesn't awaken you, I, I don't know how to awaken you. So... It's even more serious. We'll talk about that next week when the press release is officially released. But we've got to take this seriously. And this is kind of a good time because people have time to think deeply about what really matters. And that's, that's great. We should cherish well, the opportunity. Yep. And the other notion that comes to mind, Brian, and that is that we've talked about this oh my goodness, probably the last 20 years together on this program of what would happen failing protections for the elderly, for sick, for people that were vulnerable, and in creating either accidentally or intentionally sort of a science of eugenics type of atmosphere. And what would happen were the nation to someday face some sort of a crisis where suddenly it came down to a matter of survival of the fitness because we did not have enough doctors, hospitals, medication, whatever to address it. And sadly, suddenly, we're now learning just how vulnerable we are without the proper protections in place. It might be fun when it's something happening somewhere in another country and healthcare rationing going on in a place like England. But what happens when the healthcare rationing comes to a place like the San Francisco Bay Area? And the one that's being rationed is your parent, your grandparent, your son, your daughter. And suddenly the doctor just comes in and says, sorry, but we've got to make some tough choices. We drew a straw and your loved one lost. And sadly, that is the very precipice upon which we find ourselves today. 
if we don't take some serious action. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He also hosts a very informative program I want you to make an effort to listen to this weekend, Saturday at 11 a.m. called Life Matters, where Brian gets a chance to dive into these issues in a deeper more informative fashion. So check the program out Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., Life Matters, right here on KFAX. Details available at web, californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. 537 from KFAX. Let's get you a look at traffic right now as we swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The pastor of a Tampa Word of Faith church is now facing charges after refusing to close its doors despite a stay-at-home order in effect meant to stop the spread of COVID-19. Now, in this case, the sheriff says that some 500 people were in attendance at church services led by Rodney Howard Brown. The River at Tampa Bay Church held two services Sunday, even as offering bus transportation to those services in spite of stay-at-home orders in that county of Florida. This, of course, is capturing headline news. Some are wondering, is he making a statement of faith here, or is there something else afoot? Well, to get some insights, we're joined now by a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He is the senior pastor at Tiburon Christian Fellowship and host of Contending for the Faith, heard every Saturday at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. He is one of America's leading Christian apologists and experts on the cults. He's Dr. Jerry Buckner. Dr. Buckner, as always, a privilege to have you join us. Greg, it's always a joy and a blessing to be with you on your program. I look forward to what God is going to do. Now, talking about this case related to the Tampa pastor, Rodney Howard Brown, and, you know, when I first read the story, and I think many folks had a reaction perhaps similar to mine, you get the sense that, well, gee, you know, we we don't want to go and put our tail between our legs and run and hide. Now is a time when traditionally when there's troubles afoot, when there is a sense of fear, confusion in our nation, such as what we went through on 9-11, the assembling together of the body of Christ gives us not only a sense of encouragement, but that sense of, of collective unity in being able to bombard the gates of heaven with our prayers during a critical time of need in our nation. And while certainly the COVID-19 health scare um, finds us in those kinds of circumstances from a spiritual standpoint, from a safety standpoint, it's a very different situation. So when you look at the actions by Rodney Howard Brown and others, I have to wonder, is this a demonstration of great faith or great foolishness? I would say the latter. It's a great uh, demonstration of foolishness because when you see people's lives being destroyed by an invisible uh, force, and we are in a visible war, something that we cannot see that's killing people left and right, whether it's in our churches or outside our churches, God is calling upon us to do everything we can to prevent this situation. And the social distancing is one major thing that we need to abide by, uh, what the government is saying, because that is the governmental mandate uh, from Romans chapter 13, obey the rulers and the governmental authorities, as well as it's the biblical mandate, because when we talk about people dying left and right, Craig, uh, that's a situation that we don't want to be contributors to that. In other words, 
it says in Exodus 20, thou shalt not kill. And the Hebrew word is murder. And then uh, it talks about in Isaiah, not Isaiah, but uh, it talks about in Genesis 9 and 6, rather, that whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. This is treading on some serious, dangerous water when we contribute to the deaths of people. And God goes as far as saying, those who are contributing to killing people should be killed themselves. I mean, Rodney Howard Brown was arrested, but, you know, Craig, I'm going to take it a step further. He's not only contributing to people dying, but this is a grave sin of murdering people and being a part of murdering people. And so Genesis 9 and 6 says, uh, whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. I would hate to put myself in that position from a biblical standpoint. And the uh, sheriffs of that county uh, did the right thing in arresting him, because there's consequences for not obeying the laws of the land, and they did the right thing. And I think if he does this again, they need to put him away and don't let him out, because if he doesn't learn the lesson this time, next time, keep him in there longer, and any leaders behind him. And you've got some leaders now that are friends of Rodney Howard Brown saying that they're going to have a big Easter service coming up like Woodstock, and they're going to get people all around the world to come. I mean, this is stupidity at the max, at the highest, and it's a dangerous way of thinking, Craig. Well, one of the things, too, that struck me when I read this story is my mind, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but my mind went to some of the events that take place in the Appalachia portion of, of the country. Uh, the stories you read of, for example, uh, Pentecostal snake handlers in states like Kentucky, where they weave the handling of dangerous, poisonous snakes into the quote-unquote worship experience all as a means of demonstrating, I guess, that the truism of of that passage in Mark, that if you touch any deadly thing, it shall not harm you. But my mind quickly speeds to also another passage of Scripture, and that is, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. To count on God's protection is one thing. To act in a foolish fashion as if to bring on trouble simply because you're trying to make a point, doesn't that fly in the face of not only good stewardship, but but actually directly challenge that command that we do not tempt the Lord our God? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because God uh, doesn't want us to tempt Him because that's a grave sin. And when we look at the uh, passages in Scripture uh, with uh, Paul one time uh, in Acts, uh, a, a snake had grabbed on him, but it was something that he was not tempting the Lord in the midst of that snake. That snake just came out of the fire and uh, wrapped around his uh, arm, and uh, so he was not tempting at all. And in that situation, God gave him grace. But to do what uh, Rodney Howard Brown is doing and these other ministers are doing, that's tempting the Lord, and that's putting yourself in danger. You're jeopardizing uh, not only your own life, but you're jeopardizing the lives of others, and you're jeopardizing the lives of people worldwide because these people in your church is not only going to be traveling in their own community, but worldwide. So it's jeopardizing all of us. And uh, as uh, pastors of churches, we are not only to pay attention to this infectious uh, virus that's killing people, but we need to be good shepherds and, and good stewards of what God has called us to be. And if we're not, God is going to hold us accountable. Now, there was a pastor in Chicago that uh, I was reading that uh, did a similar thing, had services, and that pastor died. 
And uh, so there's pastors dying. They're getting it. And God is trying to give us a big warning to, you know, they said, Craig, one of the uh, best degrees you can get is a DCS, and that's a doctrine of common sense. And there's very few people have that. <laughs> yeah, that's, sadly, that's that's very true. You know, <laughs> something else that comes to mind, you, you make the analogy or, or tie in the, the role that pastors play as shepherds. And, you know, when we look at the modeling that Christ demonstrates in the New Testament relationship to a shepherd and the sheep, we see the shepherd as a leader, certainly as a defender, and as a protector. Christ is himself in that role in relationship to the church, and when he calls a pastor and says, now go and feed my sheep, you are effectively the shepherd of that flock. Isn't there not just a not just a, a moral imperative to protect the safety of a congregation, but also a spiritual mandate, a spiritual responsibility that a pastor has? Oh, absolutely. Uh, God uh, wants us to go beyond the call of duty and, uh, you know, be willing to, uh, as Jesus said, lay down our life for a friend. And laying down your life is uh, protecting uh, your flock, and doing everything you can as a good shepherd to make sure that you don't put your flock in harm's way. And what these uh, pastors are doing, like Rodney Howard Brown is doing, he's putting them in harm's way, in death way. And I, I just can't understand this. You know, one of the things that I have said about Rodney Howard Brown and every cult leader, I've been studying cults now for 50 years, and uh, I'm teaching a class on that right now at uh, Gateway Seminary to the students, the missions to the cults. And one of the things that I find that cult leaders do, they're into uh, psychological manipulation. They manipulate the minds of people and brainwash them, uh, and they always put them in harm's way. You know, you go all the way back uh, to the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know. Uh, they, uh, you know, their earlier leaders, uh, you know, Charles Hayes Russell and Judge Franklin Rutherford and Nathan Knorr and Frederick Farms, they all said, you know, you shouldn't take blood transfusion. And people were dying left and right. And uh, they have killed more people than uh, Jim Jones could ever imagine. In 1978, Jim Jones uh, murdered about 916 people in Guyana. Well, uh, you know, there's no comparison to the deaths of people in the uh, Kingdom Hall, Joe Witness, and then look at the Christian scientists, but they don't believe in going to the doctors, they don't believe in uh, physical uh, medication because the physical body don't exist. They've murdered more people than Jim Jones. And yet every cult leader is into psychological manipulation, and they are deadly and dangerous, and they also have mental problems. Everyone that I have studied got mental problems. And what they do is they bring that mental problem to their congregation. And uh, the sad part of this, when we oftentimes, Craig, will look at uh, the leaders, but we don't look at also challenging the congregation, because God expects for us to not only be uh, biblical literate uh, and test all things and hold fast to that which is true, but the congregations are just as guilty. And Walter Martin used to say this, my mentor. He said, one of the greatest ways to shut down word faith teachers is to stop supporting them, is to, is to hit their pocketbooks. And so uh, I also blame the congregations as well, because you, you, they need to use common sense. They need to also be challenged that, 
you know, this is a bad shepherd. It's not looking after us. So when we say, you know, the shepherd should be looking after the sheep, well, the sheep need to also say, look, you know, I need to know about the Bible. I need to know what this man is saying and what he's doing is not true. So there's a problem on both hands, and uh, we need to challenge the congregations just as much as we need to challenge also uh, the shepherds, because some of these so-called shepherds, bad shepherds, some of them never will change. But there's hope for the congregation, and we try to reach out to them as well. And, of course, the big challenge here is that there is not just the hearing of the Word. You need to practice the Word. The Bible says to try the spirits or test the spirits to see that they be of God. And so, you know, we need to always be holding up the mirror of Scripture against anything that's preached by any pastor in any pulpit in America. And if you look at what the pastor says and it doesn't square with what the Word of God says, then guess what? One of the two is wrong, and I'm not even going to ask you to guess which one. If you've just joined us, a visit today with Dr. Jerry Buckner, host of Contending for the Faith, heard every Saturday at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. By the way, Dr. Buckner is going to be featured as part of the keynote address that he shared at the 54th Annual Bass Church Workers Convention that'll be coming your way this Friday at 5 p.m. right here on Lifeline. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Mark your calendars. Tell a friend to tune in. That's Friday at 5 o'clock, a very special sermon address from Dr. Jerry Buckner right here on KFAX. Let's take a quick time out. We'll get you updated on some traffic. Come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.